Welcome back to another episode of the Sports Medicine Project with Kelly and Blake and we'll introduce who, well I guess it's probably, we don't really need to introduce because it's part two, isn't it? Mm. Part two of our episode with Simon Bartold. Yeah, it was awesome. We got tons of, of really good feedback and we've got heaps of videos going up on the Instagram of a couple of pearls of wisdom. That was incredible. Not often we get to speak with someone and hear consistently new information. Mm, yeah, it was good. I didn't know that you split that into two parts and I don't think we ever said that we were splitting that into two parts. So it would have just ended and everyone would have suspense. I know I did I did change it in the episode notes. I did uh, say part one, but like a couple of days after when you right, did mention it. Right. Yeah. Well part two, here you go. Yeah, so firstly, before we jump into part two, we're going to have probably 10, 15 minutes. We've got a couple of things to chat about. Obviously, what we learnt, what annoyed us, and then a couple of things. We did the half marathon today, but just before we touch on that, I did want to mention anyone listening that's a clinician, regardless of your profession, please head over to Facebook and look up the Future Health Network. Um, we're putting out some some pretty good content on there and we're just about to hit 400 members and they're all clinicians so we just yeah talk about pain education research case studies it's really good and it's growing quite quick which is awesome also remember to give us a five star rating on spotify only if you enjoy the content if you hate us Give us, give us a one star and on Apple Podcasts as well. I think we're starting to see a bit of a trend, more people listening on Apple than Spotify. I like Apple better. I don't know why. I think it's because it's like where I first started listening to podcasts. Mm, so OG. just all of my podcasts are on Apple. So then I get confused when I listen to something on Spotify <laughs> because then it's not in my Apple podcast yeah. and I need to find where it is. Yeah. And you get up to different spots. And we have gotten the most, probably the best feedback we've ever gotten over on our Instagram from some of the content we've been putting up from there. Some really good feedback from some students and then also for some regular listeners. So that's really good as well. So head over there, the Sports Medicine Project, and we've just added in a new thing where every Tuesday we just focus on female athletes. I guess just females Females, in general. Yeah, the last one that I did was on um, rectus diastasis, which is abdominal separation during pregnancy. Yeah, that was good. Postpartum. Yeah, the one I did about return to running postnatal was was really interesting. I love doing those. And the one this week that we're doing is actually um, thanks to Simon Bartold who mentioned it. It would have been in the last, so part one, he was talking about the the particular study on estrogen and and Achilles stiffness. So Mm -hmm. keep your eyes peeled for a sort of paper rundown this week. Yeah, that'll be good. That'll be really, really good. So Kelly, this morning, Lake Macquarie half marathon, a week ago you were in, you were racing and then you were pacing, and then you would change your pacing two minutes before. So you've had a bit of a whirlwind. Yeah. Run, run me through it. How, that's your first well, time pacing. So we signed up for Lake Macquarie half not that long ago, mm. but then I also wanted to do Blackmore's half marathon, and that's mm. in for two or three weeks. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to race both of them. So one of them I was going to race, and one of them I was going to do. Mm. But then this week, um, Ben Cooper asked if I could pace it. And that sounded quite fun. So I I said yes. And so I was supposed to be pacing the two hours, so 120 minutes. And then literally two minutes before the race started, um, I was like ready. I was practicing all week running at 5.40 pace, which is what that was supposed to be. Mm. And then two minutes before the race, I I had a a change to 110 minutes. So that my pace had to... It was um, 5.13. Mm. I was standing there at the start line Googling what, what pace to run for 110-minute <laughs> half marathon. Trying <laughs> to work that out as you're I was standing in like the group and because I've got this balloon attached to my ponytail for being a pace, run, pace runner. Mm. And um, people are like, oh, well, what pace are you running? I'm like, I'm just figuring that out now. I'm like, probably not putting a huge amount of trust into everyone around me who's trying to, to sit on my sort of tail. But it was the best, like... Pace running was so much fun. It was because it was a very comfortable pace as well. So you could just chat to everyone around you. And I had mm. so much energy to give to the runners who were really, you know, giving it some. Mm. Um, but yeah, 100% would do that. Like, I, I honestly, I feel like in my bones, that is what I was bones. born to do. Just be like a, cr- a cringy, go bones. for it pace runner. Yeah, yeah you were was, happy. Oh, you were happy. That's so good. Mm. You were one of the sufferers, though. 
Yeah, I was. Yeah, I've got to admit, coming past you a couple of times, it did lift me up. Until the last couple of laps, I didn't see you on the very last lap, but the, yeah, I did pass I you a couple of times. The one in the middle, I saw you and I tried to give you something, but I couldn't give anything. No. I thought anything, no, I did. need I all the efficiency. You gave me more than you usually do. It's like park run. Yeah, So how'd true. you go? Yeah, I finally got under. I'm just going to grab my phone. I'll put it on charge. I don't know how this is going to sound if I'm coming around. I went really well in my own right, but I've got to give this shout out. I finally found him. I really highly doubt that he will ever hear this or he listens to this, but I, I won't say his name just in case he doesn't want his name to be said, but he was the 90-minute pacer. Oh, my God. What an absolute legend. Yeah, so got under the sub-90. 100% thanks to him and I was saying to Kelly I've never run with a pacer before and we didn't have one at the Gold Coast or there was one at the Gold Coast but it was too fast and yeah it was so all I had to think about was just watching him or looking at his feet and I think I mean it looked so easy for him so that his persona of being really calm and looking easy rubbed off on me and I was like oh okay maybe this isn't as hard I don't need to get all like hyped up and be like I need to make this the race of my life so it made me calm down and then yeah he really pushed it through the hills which was good in the sense of like lots of motivation we had a couple of chats which was awesome and were the yeah. chats helpful though or yeah were they, like, I, I said this to you they, they really were because I <clears throat> I was I don't think I could talk if I was exerting no, myself was at good. that level. He was great. Gave me a pat on the back and he's like, what are you going for? And I was like this. And he's like, oh, have you done many long runs? And I was like, oh, not really, but I should be right. I'll see how I'm feeling at 15K. And yeah, it was awesome. It was so, so mm. good. And then crossed the line with him basically, yeah. And we still had 30 seconds to, to go. And then, yeah, everyone in our group, there was only one person that didn't make it. Everyone else like went off ahead, which was awesome. So he did a, did a good job. We volunteered a park run yesterday too. And oh, we met yeah. um, Alex at park run, who was also going for sub 90. And he got and it. And he got it too. Yeah. So that was good to I, see you guys. That was awesome. Yeah. And I, the wheel, oh, everyone killed it. It was such a good event. Such a good, like, mm. the running community is just freaking, oh, I just can't. It's so good. Mm. Yeah, I definitely this weekend had a, a real, a couple of personal moments where I just, can I, for those of you who don't know, I did my first ever research paper, which is now published on like the social, psychological and physical benefits of parkrun. And obviously we know there's, there's huge benefits no matter how young or how old you are. And, you know, yesterday being at parkrun, taking the photos, I took like 950 photos, but I was set up, if you been to the Newey Park Run course, there's a big loop from two and a half K, sorry, not a big loop, a big straight from two and a half back to three and a half. And everyone was running across there, like most of the, like 90% of all the park runners. And I'm just thinking, you know, everyone's at different levels, different ages, and everyone was just loving it. And then to do the half marathon, it was just a weekend mm. where I was just I so said, appreciative yeah. of just the... Such good energy. Yeah, not the PBing and, and running well, but just... You know, running can really be like this gateway to great physical health, psychological health. Just, yeah, I just, I need to find a better way to articulate it. it was, it's funny, isn't it? Because we just went to lunch for um, Blake's uncle's 50th and I was chatting to Blake's cousin's girlfriend. She's like, I just can't imagine getting up early on a Sunday and going for a run. And <laughs> yeah. I was like, no, you don't understand. It's the best part of the week. Mm. Like, it is just so good. Especially yeah. a race. That's yeah. so good. And it's relative. I guess everyone's got their yeah, sport or their thing. But it's just incredible to see people out there. And people with prams, like there was this lady I took oh, I reckon forty photos of her. She was the very last park runner and she was like, I'm so sorry to keep you out here. I was like, No, no, just keep going. You're doing incredible, took mm, all these and photos and she was drunk. Yeah, was holding so hands. People with prams. Yeah, there's just something about running it's incredible yeah. it really really is. is and i think i wonder and i know michael nishki which probably a good time to bring up michael's coming on the podcast this saturday which will be awesome so we'll put out some feelers for some listener questions but i know that he's i've seen him recommend a few times that parkrun should be like written into the guidelines of physical activity uh, by the government for australia it should you know, be it walk, should be like or... prescribed by doctors i reckon Mm. Like doctors should prescribe it to patients like they do medication and say, mm. come back and see me in two months and show me that your show time me your has park improved. Up. Oh, maybe not. Oh, like, that's a bit tough. Come back and you... see me when you're under sub 20. <laughs> no. Like, I mean, like show that you're putting in yeah. an effort. Or that you went. Just that you went. Yeah, yeah that, that that's you probably fair enough. 
if you're not improving. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'd be no. good. That would be good. But and, like, why can't they? Like, they if they have the mm. power to prescribe medication, why don't they have the power to prescribe exercise? Yeah, I think just a lack of knowledge. I mean, some GPs are great and they've got a good understanding because they're you know immersed in that I guess the physical activity world. But mm. others not so much, and it's hard for them. And I'm not defending all GPs, but I do know that they have to know so much about all this different stuff. I think GPs, yeah, I agree. I think they're great. My GP is amazing. I love my GP. I would hug her. She's the best. Mm. Yeah, it's good. GPs are good. And finding a good GP is great. But they also, you know, if you're not, I want to say if you're not dying, but they're not trying to get you to, I guess. They're trying to save your life. Yeah, and if it's like, great, the infection's gone, awesome. Let's not try and work on getting it or trying to prevent it. But again, that's just... I guess probably our bias because we hear some horror stories from patients mm. you know it's probably only a small subset like most health professionals but you know people talk about the things they don't like yeah more that's than true. the things they do like yeah now i also so thankfully thank you to louise sophie and somebody else that put me not in contact but just helped me find the sub 90 um i don't know what i want to call idol. it yeah he changed my life <laughs> with this race i yeah i just those last couple of kilometers were hell but yeah definitely got me through that's awesome i really hope that i can one day pace not sub 90 one day pace and just try and give that back but mm-hmm. yeah anyway yeah, there's awesome. one thing i did want to mention as well there is this guy talking about just how good running is there was this guy in the race and i only saw him once he i saw him at the turnaround and i've seen him Runs with the Flyers. I've seen him at once at, um, where were we on the weekend prior? Fingal Bay. Fingal Bay, yeah. He's an older guy. He wears a pair of blue Alpha Flyers. He was absolutely I think I know pumping. who you're talking about. He was yeah. running so quick. I thought he was going to take off. This guy was unreal. And that, again, just all these... All the Flyers are so quick. Yeah, they are, are quick. Incredible. Just seeing so many people. I mean, it's obviously all relative, but seeing someone you know, run to what their, you know, not their max heart rate, but just running to what's hard for them and then just enduring that pain. Like, it's just mm. incredible. That's the other aspect. How like, Ingrid? Oh, my goodness. She is amazing. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. It's really motivating. Yeah, really so motivating. motivating. Yeah, yeah, it was good. It was really good. Now, what did you learn this week? Oh, yeah. So, what did I learn this week? <clears throat> I probably should have changed it because it's about a runner, but I did post this about, post this on the Instagram as a story. I, I had a runner who was doing the Sunshine Coast half and yeah, he had been suffering with an injury, um, you know, still able to move and run and do everything like that. It wasn't um, debilitating, but you know, we were saying, and I, my recommendation wasn't to stop running and not do the race. I wasn't worried that it would tear or rupture or anything like that. But um, we just talked about it's likely that it'll, it'll probably be sore during the race and you might be sore for a couple of days after and it really might, put a dent in the rehab which is normal because you want to do what you you want to do and, and what you love but yeah he um he did the race and said pb'd said the race was great and pulled up pretty much okay so i what, just what was wrong with him um injury uh perineal oh. peritoneopathy i think we've talked about this person no different person oh. it uh just reinforced to me how resilient and strong the body is i mean and and tapering Tapering makes such yeah. a big difference. Yeah, and rehab and tape and we give an orthotic with a little wedge to unload the perineal and wearing that not when we're running, all that kind of thing. But again, that's small, low-hanging fruit. I just The body is incredibly resilient. Mm-hmm. What annoyed me was I saw an influencer, I'm not going to say who it was, on Instagram posting about exercise and how it reduces a number of diseases, which is great. It was like, you know, if you do this much, it's shown to reduce risk by 60%. Awesome statistic, great to get people moving. It's like, you know what, I'm going to check out these studies because I actually see, sorry, check out the study because I see people post this a lot. Depends what the disease is. Yeah, I can't remember what the disease was, but jumped on, picked up the study. It was in males aged between 20 and 30. Hmm. And the recommendation had been made for the general pop or population. So just issues with that. I mean, it's no, it's not wrong posting the paper, but just make note, this was done in this population. And it's different for 40-year-old women, 20-year-old women, 60-year-old mm. men. Like, it's so different. And then what does that population do? You know, were they firefighters? Were they military? You know, was it just gen pop? So 
that kind of annoyed me. And there was nothing in there. I had a thing this week, actually. We were doing our article review on Tuesday, mm. and it was the article that I'm going to post on social media next week, the one that Simon was talking about in part one about the Achilles tendon stiffness. Mm. And we were talking about how resistance training and loading programs increase tendon stiffness. And mm. Dave was rattling off these articles to, to read through about that. And so I went up and looked them up. There was three of them. They were all by the same author. And every single article was a group of, 20 like probably 20 year old um athletic males Mm. every single one i'm like well how applicable even is this to females because now we know that estrogen has such a powerful effect on Mm. tendon stiffness so what's what's resistance training plus a female athlete going to do to their tendon stiffness like is Mm. that even the same thing i don't know Mm. so how much can we actually even draw from that completely agree completely agree a lot of the running research too is is done in Yes, there's males and females, but it's like 80-20 split. You know, it's highly concentrated with males. But yeah, yeah. anyway, what, um, what annoyed you? What did you learn this week? The thing that annoyed me this week was, it was just a little reflection point that I was having. But I, And I know I get where it comes from, but it's still, I think there's an issue with it, that I mm. really feel like work cover patients are treated differently by Mm. all professionals that are involved in their care or Mm. all providers that are involved in their care. Unethically or... No, just differently. Like it's it's Mm. just not the same as you would treat a private paying patient or Mm. just the processes are all very tricky and work cover sucks. And I don't know, it was just like, I just... So what I had a patient this week who had, while he was at work, he had like a wall fall on him and he, he... hurt his knee and it was really big and swollen and he didn't know how he hurt it because he just Mm. got crushed basically and he went to the hospital and just the management of it because it was through work cover was not how you would expect it to be managed if Mm. it was just someone who walked in off Mm. the street and even then me seeing him being like this needs an MRI which didn't happen in the hospital it was so difficult to get that to actually happen. So he just ended up going and paying for it himself. Yeah. Um, Good on him for doing that. And, it's hard. And he ruptured his ACL. Yeah. And it was just like, you know, he's just a guy that hurt himself at work trying mm. to get better. Mm. And it's just these processes that just... Hierarchy. Uh, and... It's just shit. Yeah. And it just was a bit of a thing that kind of grinded my gears a bit. Yeah. That doesn't always happen, I'm sure. That's like a case. But I do feel as though patients going through work cover are not treated the same Mm. as other patients. And I don't know why. Well, I do know why. But yeah. Mm. What I learned this week was I'm doing... And the thing that I was going to say is I'm doing the Better Clinician Project course online at the moment. And I just always love to have an online course going at all times. Like... Getting a bit of spare time while I'm at work is not that often. But when I do get time, it's so nice to just be able to go and watch like 10 minutes even of a a lecture or half an hour of a lecture. But Mm. I'm learning about patella tendinopathy at the moment. And I find it was interesting as the spiel that you always go for with tendon pain is, you know, your capacity is not high enough or you must be a little bit weaker on that side. And that's why your tendons started to react in, in whatever way. But what they were saying on the Better Clinician Project was with patella tendinopathy, it actually tends to be the, the stronger, the taller people who develop it because you have to have a certain amount of strength to be able to create the amount of force and the plyometric power to actually aggravate your patella mm-hmm. tendon, which is why Ebony Rio reckons that you can only develop patella tendinopathy if you're a jumping athlete or if you mm-hmm. participate in a jumping sport. Um, and it's just interesting. Like, it's just a very different, like it kind of defeats the, the rule or the story that you tend to sort of go for with explaining tendons, which makes me question how accurate, accurate that narrative Mm. is. Anyways, I I just think they found that quite interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. Yeah. Cool. Great. Well, everybody enjoy this lovely episode with, or part two with Simon Bartold, Kelly, any parting words? words no. sorry uh no I no don't have any lovely all right guys it. yeah have a lovely week and we'll see you actually we will talk to you and all if you don't week. run just try it it's really good <laughs> That's <a> broad recommendation <laughs> all right see you guys
anyway, so so obviously you need to think about when you run when you run up a hill, you, you're obviously much more on your forefoot, and when you run down a hill, you're more on your on your heel. So it's pretty much more important to try to think about what shoe is going to recognise those loads. And especially if you're thinking about doing some trail running, that becomes super important because there, there are a lot of different things to consider in trail running, which is completely different to road running. Um, it's mm. as different as Nordic skiing to alpine skiing. Mm. On, on that topic, I had a patient recently and he um, is sponsored by Salomon and he got a pair of shoes. I'm pretty sure they come out in the next couple of weeks. And Salomon now have a carbon-plated trail shoe. Um, like I would love to hear your thoughts. How do you think that's going to work? Like you think it'll be be as beneficial as the road, as or what we have seen them on the road? Yeah, I think it will. I mean, carbon plates are super interesting. So it's going to get back to exactly what they're hoping to achieve with a carbon fiber plate. So for me, the carbon plate does a few things. For for a start, it gives some real integrity to the shoe. So mm-hmm. With these shoes, you're dealing with a shoe that's on, you know, probably um, a stack of, of 40 and 35, maybe. That's that's typically what Nike are, or 34. So you've got 40 mil of foam underneath your heel, which is inherently st- unstable, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, so what the carbon fiber plate does is it probably helps to hold all this together and provide a bit of stability. I do think that it probably um assist with propulsive power and we know that by looking at negative work at the first mpj in the study so it tells us that's what's going on <laughs> so i think that the carbon fiber plate will do that quite now with trail running what happens is that you are often um running across a fall line so running across a mountain or up a mountain or down a mountain or striking a rock or jumping over a log you're doing <laughs> all these sorts of different things so a carbon fiber plate's function probably has to be far more multi-directional um, in, in its purpose than a road running shoe, which, so road running is a linear sport. You follow your nose. Trail running is not like that at all. So <coughs> it gets back entirely to the design and the concept of the carbon plate and what, what they think it is going to do. But it's going to be much more than just a uh, you know a propulsive device. It's going to be more about how can you stable stabilize medial lateral forefoot movement. So, looking more at the the ground direction force vectors in all three directions rather than just one direction, which is typically what running does. Mm, that's interesting. I need to ask about these hyper shoes. It's it's driving me crazy. <laughs> Oh, you have to wait for the next exciting episode of Bartol Clinical there, Kelly. Um, <laughs> oh, nice. Sounds good. I'm about to, about to blow the lid on it. Yeah, look, I do think um, we are seeing some very interesting things. I mean, I, I had a fantastic interview with um, Walter Hootcomer, who was one of the guys who was very involved in the, the original Vaporfly 4% project. And when I interviewed him, I noticed that he was wearing a Puma shirt. <laughs> And I said, mate, you're gonna you're gonna get in a big trouble with Nike wearing that Puma shirt. And he said, I'm not working with Nike anymore, I'm working with Puma. Mm. And I, I've gone, oh, what what's coming out? He said, You have to wait and see. And they've just released this shirt, and it's just out of completely out of left field. And it's so different. And and Walter is just a guy who is incredibly smart and very innovative and, and has a background in a lot of different sports, not just running. Mm. So I think we are I, I think we've probably gone about as far as we can with the so-called super. So for me, a super shoe has to have a lot of foam, it has to have a carbon fibre plate, and it has to have a rocket. That's the mm. three definitions that, that underpin a super shoe. Mm. I think we're going to move on to different things um, with with footwear and, and maybe not even needing a carbon fibre plate. There may be other ways of doing this. And I think it will be very much defined by the geometry of the shoe, in particular the midsole, and uh, crazy things that you might be able to do uh, either with the midsole or within the midsole that will mm. again have really huge performance benefits for the athlete. So is it as, as crazy as the Mizuno it. shoe? What's that? Sorry, is it as crazy as the Mizuno shoe? The was, energy, the, yeah, that's sort of come out with the no no heel, just the forefoot. <clears throat> oh, that's pretty crazy. Um, and I mean, Mizuno are doing some really interesting stuff actually. Um, yeah, it's, it, the Puma one is equally as crazy. Yeah. Um, but I think we'll, we'll see stuff that is really pushing the boundaries of what we thought was possible. The designers are really frothing at the mouth. You know, they've all got the <laughs> teeth after uh, across many different companies. 
So they're all looking at this nigging how far can we push the envelope here? And so I do think we're going to see some really interesting stuff coming across. I think we're going to see some interesting stuff in football as well. Um, you know, with the World Cup about to happen um, in Qatar, I think we're going to see so I think we'll see some really crazy stuff going on in football mm. in Qatar as well. With, so with the definition then of a hyper shoe, what what does that mean to you? Like what's what does that entail? I haven't decided yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying to get it right so that I can make my fame and fortune by by being the first to describe a hyper shoe. But um, uh, watch this space. Yeah, you know, I, I am. I am sort of putting together a piece on this to, to try to get my own thoughts in in order about this. But um, even when you look at the AlphaFly two uh, percent, the the new newest Nike shoe, which I think is is pretty awesome, mm. you can tell that that it's probably pushed it almost as far as it can go. Mm. Um, I think I think that those designs, the, the neck has well and truly been run, and I don't think they can take it much further. And the other companies that have jumped on the super shoe bandwagon, only, actually only a couple of them have got it properly right. Um, I think that the others are probably nowhere near what Nike has achieved. I think ASICS has done a pretty good job. And I think um, probably Brooks with the Endorphin Pro 2, Mm. I mean, the first the first endorphin was an absolute bush pig. They just didn't get it right at all. So <laughs> um, but the, they really they really got back on the horse, and I think they've done a pretty good job with that. But the interesting thing here is that the only shoe, the only company that has published research on the super shoes is Nike. No one else has done it. Mm. Not one other company who has a super shoe has put any data out at all telling us what they do. Yeah, interesting. I, now I'm unsure if you can answer this question, but if it was if you had all the super shoes laid out in front of you, and someone said, "Listen, you go onto an island. There's a 400 meter track there. You can only take one pair of shoes with you. What shoes are you bringing?" It'd be for me. Yeah, for you. Providing I was a responder, um, it it would probably be um, the the original Vaporfly four percent. Mm, nice. Yeah, okay. I never got to run in them, but I had a patient that actually PB'd on the weekend at the Sunny Coast Half and he loved them. Yeah, a lot of a lot of guys are going back to that original format because it, it's the one that blew the top off Pandora's box, basically. <laughs> so it's a it it, it was well, it is probably the most revolutionary shoe of the last 50 years. It's that that important. You mentioned that um the carbon plate might not be necessary in the hyper shoe and my understanding is that the the carbon plate probably has less of an effect and it's more to do with the the foam in super shoes is that why that's the case and that the carbon plates more so to just keep it a little bit more durable is that accurate or uh, well there's a lot of secrets that we don't know you know it was interesting talking to Walter who came up who was so involved and was on the payroll with Nike and he said they wouldn't tell him anything either. So he had to basically reverse engineer it all. <laughs> so I, I think that we need to sort of think outside the box. So you need to think about what is coming and what's possible with the shoe. So I want you to think about, let's think about Kevlar. So you know what Kevlar is. They put it in a bulletproof vest, right? And if you get a bullet fired at you, it'll protect you. Mm -hmm. So Kevlar is a cloth. It's a fabric. And it has a zero Young's modulus. So it has no stretch at all. It won't stretch. So if you imagine if you put a small piece of fabric material in a midsole that was completely decoupled and you're able to anchor it in the rear foot and beyond the metatarsal heads, what would happen, and so it would make an extremely flexible shoe, you'd be able to roll up into a ball and throw it against the wall and it would bounce back. But what would happen is that as you progressed from contact to foot flat, is that Kevlar fabric would start to develop strain. It would start to resist that movement so the shoe itself would actually start to stiffen all on side just because mm. okay and then as you moved into propulsion that shoe would then start to become very very rigid just like a foot so it's you know it's basically saying, what do you want a foot to do you want it to be adaptable and then as you come into propulsion you want it to become more rigid so yeah. that, that's a that's a hypothetical for you to think about but that's a that's a distinct possibility now and the only thing that holds that sort of innovation back is the manufacturing processes what is possible in a factory in China? What can they do? 
um, how well can they execute this stuff? And this is where Nike has a huge advantage because they've got more money than the entire GDP of Australia and they can they can source the best materials and they can source the best factories and they can source the best biomechanists and they've got a research facility that is by far the best in the world you know like incredible mm. so i think this is this is the thing what where where are we going you know where's 3d printing going where's all these other technologies going what will you as a physiotherapist be able to do in your clinic will you be able to take a laser scan of the foot will you be able to upload it to taiwan where they'll match it to a specific last they'll 3d print the midsole they'll they'll 3d engineer the mesh up and they'll send it back to your clinic a week later it'll cost 30 bucks more than a, a, a shoe from running shoe store and wow. it will be bespoke for your patient that te that technology is available right now you can do that right now so it's everything is open to discussion basically so there's a lot of stuff going on that we have the potential to do in the next uh, the next five to ten years it's incredible it's not far away i mean five to ten years isn't that long yeah well i mean i think right now, as i said you know you can do it right now it's just a it's just a question of um the viability of you know how you mm. but if you've got the equipment you can do it yeah wow maybe you should get one for home kelly at <laughs> <laughs> the garage yeah, the people off the street. All you, all you need is a foot scanner. And yeah. that's take care of the rest for you. Wow. Moving a, a little bit away from like performance and talking a little bit about injury risk, this is a question that I, I get asked almost every, every patient of mine ask me this question. It was a listener question as well. In regards to kind of footwear prescription, you know, the evidence is it's pretty unclear. We've got a little bit of like Ben O'Neill's work saying that comfort's probably most important. I mean, what's your thoughts about, I guess, fitting a shoe to someone's foot to reduce their injury risk? I mean, are we there yet? You know, what does the research say? I'd love to hear your thoughts. So I don't believe you can prescribe footwear. I, I just don't think that's possible. I think you can make informed recommendation, but I don't think you can, I don't think you can make an absolutely accurate a recommendation so you know you can prescribe an antibiotic and you know you know the dose and you know the effect and you mm. know the outcome if you get that wrong we can't do that with footwear yeah um i think what we can do is we can as you as you've just said like you we can kind of understand how you can shift load and that's such mm. an important thing um and so for example we've talked about netball and basketball so important to have rounded contours because when you have a rounded contour you are shifting load um, and you can do lots of different things. So, for example, if you had a, if you had a, if you look at the bottom of a shoe, and you had a line that went right down the middle of that shoe and it broke the shoe in half, okay, so that you could separate the bottom of the shoe. All you'd have to do to to shift load is you'd have to move that central line either medially or laterally, and suddenly you've got a shoe that's behaving completely differently. It's about mm. the geometry, right? Mm. So you're either going to allow more supination or you're going to allow more pronation. It's that simple. And then if you understand all of that, you can say, okay, well, I've got somebody here who wants to go a little bit faster. And we're not going to talk about supination pronation. We're going to talk about somebody who wants to go a little bit faster. If you want to go a bit faster, you probably do need to be a little bit more up on your forefoot and you need to probably be enhancing resupination because that's how you go quicker. So you would want to shift the uh, the central decoupling so that the lateral platform, sorry, the medial platform was a bit a bit wider than the lateral platform. So you're encouraging that takeoff supination. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. A more characteristic base rather than yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and simple things like if you if you increase the base net of the shoe, so the base net is the literal width, uh, typically across the ball of the foot, across the the forefoot. If you increase the base net, you completely change the performance of the shoot because you, you're changing loading um, of, of the of the of the long end. So I think we've got a pretty good handle on all that stuff now. Um, and I think you can you can exploit that as a clinician um, for your patient's benefit. Another example would be a rocket or even a carbon fiber plated shoot. If you've got a Halix Limitus, got a painful Halix Limitus. Yes. You go, bingo, whack them in that shoot. Yeah. And it's, yeah. you know, it's likely to help them. That's how Hoka have actually gone from, you know, a company that, that they thought they might be worth 10 million. They've just turned over a billion dollars and they've done that since 2011, gone mm. from nothing to a billion mm. dollar company in 10 years. Absolutely incredible. 
Yeah. And they've done that because they built a weird-looking shoe with tons of foam that was light and had a huge rocket. Yeah, so I have surgeons recommending, like in the surgeon's letter, they will say the hocker, the hocker shoe. And I've never seen them say any other shoe but the hocker. And yeah. like I'm talking about that therapeutic footwear, I've had people, you know, with Achilles issues run in a carbon plated shoe and they can run like four or five extra kilometres without pain. Like it's incredible some of the characteristics and how they can, yeah. can help the body. I think one of the really interesting things, and this is something I want to try to address this year with some videos, is you know, trying to get people to understand how you might actually be able to pick up a shoe off a slap wall. So go into a shop. And for us, you know, for clinicians to be able to pick up that shoe and just from the design language, understand by looking at it how that shoe was likely to perform. Um, and I think that's something that we're probably not very good at, but it's actually not very complicated um, that you can look at it and you can understand why the designers have done what they did and what they were hoping to achieve just by looking at the shoe. So I don't want to be doing shoe reviews because I think shoe reviews are nonsense <laughs> because what might work for me mm. isn't going to work for you, Blake. It's not going to work for Kelly. So it doesn't make any sense to a shoe review. But I think to try to understand a new product and say, okay, well, this is interesting. There's, they've done this or they've done that or they've put this little feature in the shoe. It's likely they did it for these reasons. And then we can maybe double back with the manufacturer and see whether we got it right or not. I think that would be an interesting exercise for us to do. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. I like that. Yeah. So do you think we've, we've kind of moved away from the, the whole neutral stability cushion categories? I mean, yeah. yeah. If anybody talks about the, that segmentation, categorization of footwear, I, I normally try to slap them in the back of the head. <laughs> um, I, usually, I usually miss, but that's my goal. So that stuff died some years ago. You, you know, it's, it doesn't make any sense at all to be talking about stability category or or god help us motion control category <laughs> or even cushioning because you know we we know that <clears throat> that cushioning is not about trying to reduce um fz1 or you know the vertical component of the ground reaction force because it doesn't do that it doesn't change the loading rate either um, what it, what it probably does do is it changes low and stiffness which is very very important so once you understand that side of it then you can start talking about cushioning but to be putting a shoe on a slat wall and say, this is a cushioning shoe, it's going to stop you from getting hurt from the impact of shoes is completely unfounded in the science. We know that's not what happens. Mm. Um, same with motion control. You know, all, all, all the features of motion control shoe will do is make the shoe heavier. And unfortunately, we're always battling the laws of physics that say F equals MA. So if you increase the mass, then you're going to increase the force. So that's why weight is so super important for shoes. You know, the lighter you can build it, the better it's going to be. Yeah. So is it is it stiffness that it reduces? Um, with like, so say a cushion shoe, um, and I'm just thinking of, of someone with like a compressive plantar heel pain going into a cushion shoe. <coughs> if they did get some therapeutic benefit from that, is it more the stiffness that it's changing rather than the actual vertical ground reaction force? No, I think that's different. So if you're talk if you're talking about pressure. So this is where we sometimes get into trouble when we look at all of the all of the load parameters. So you can talk about force, you can talk about pressure, you can talk about vibration, you can talk about acceleration, you can talk about all these different things. And there's probably somewhere in the vicinity of nine or ten key. Um, you can talk about joint moments. So all of these key um, physical things that, that yeah. happen to us. So I think if you've got somebody who's got compressive bladder heel pain. Um, then, then using a shoe that is highly cushioned is more about reducing the pressure in that area rather than having an effect through reducing the first impact peak or even the loading rate of that peak, mm -hmm. um, because we know that's not going to happen. What, what we, we do know, you know, like Ben O'Neill did these studies back in 1977, you know, and he published a study saying if you go from a highly cushioned shoe to a to a to a um a, um, a dress shoe you know something you'd buy at Myers. Mm. I can show you that your um peak impact load will reduce and everybody's gone you're crazy you know of course that doesn't happen and then he sat on it for a year and uh, for 10 years and all the industry is still going cushioning 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 and then he did another study looking at shore hardness and midsoles and he showed exactly the same thing now of course what's happening there is that is that your brain is registering that you're on a harder or softer softer surface and it's modulating lower, lower limb stiffness as a result of that right. input signal. Right. 
Yeah. So it's very straightforward. So if you're on a softer, softer midsole, then your lower limb will model as a stiffer spring. And if you're on a harder midsole, it'll model mm. as a more compliant spring. Which is so that's similar to the difference between like trail running and road running as well, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. 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 It's, you know, and, and this is a thing that we, we've been so boxed in by these two great parameters over the last 40 years that have dominated running shoe design. So pronation control and cushioning, <laughs> neither of them really have any merit. So, you know, it's like it's time to move on. So that's yeah. why that's why segmentation or categorization, whatever whatever you want to call it, is dead. If you go into a running shoe store, store and they've got their shoes displayed according to segments, mm. my advice would be to back out and go <laughs> to another store that doesn't do that because it's not likely they're going to understand the product too well. Wow. So let me get this right. You're telling me that if I don't, correct or if i do correct pronation i can reduce all injuries <laughs> with a big motion control shoot the book piece i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna plead the fifth on that one <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> the the cons to doing um a virtual podcast is you can't um slap them over the back of the head from from yeah, those kinds and, of comments and nobody, right? and nobody can throw anything at me so i don't think <laughs> Uh, I, I did want to ask, Kelly and I were having a conversation um, more so about how many, how I probably own too many running shoes and how much running I actually do. And I, well, we were talking about the, the foam and the difference. So I weigh about 105 kilos and Kelly's um, probably around high 50s, I would say, maybe 58, 59. And we we're talking about the foam and the shoes and how much um, or how quickly they would wear. Is there, and we were saying that obviously as you have a bigger foot and a bigger person, the shoe would have to be bigger so there's more foam so possibly it, it might last, um, sorry, last about the same. Does that change with weight and size of, of someone's foot and I guess the bigger the shoe, does it last less? <clears throat> yeah, so this is one of the many dirty little secrets of the running shoe industry and that's a very leading question you've just asked. <laughs> you So if we take the example of you at a, a hundred and something kilos and Kelly at, 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 at 50 odd kilos, and you let, let's discuss the issue of drop, okay? And drop was the was the discussion du jour for quite a few years. And people said, yeah, you know, you've got to you've got to have you know zero drop or very low drop, et cetera, et cetera. And um, so my question to you would be: so do you think if you've got a hundred kilo winner? let's say that you're you're both males so 100 kilo runner and we had a, a skinny little distance runner who was let's say 65 kilos and then you had exactly the same foot size and you bought exactly the same shoe mm. do you think you would exploit the foam in the same way as a 100 kilo runner as a 65 kilo runner so and, do you, and do you believe the drop would be the same in that shoe because it wouldn't be because you're going to compress it a lot more than the 65 kilo runner and so the whole discussion of drop becomes absolute nonsense because it's different. Um, in in addition, um, the drop doesn't scale for shoe size. So in other words, it is different for a size thirteen than it is for a size seven. And that's something we also don't talk about. And the other issue is that with foams, there's about a six percent error in manufacturing of foams. So you could quite literally have a brand new pair of shoes out of the box, and one could have a drop of ten millimeters, and the other could have a drop of seven. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, so that's the facts, Jack. That's, <laughs> that's oh, just the way it is. Wow. That's a real, I had no idea. <laughs> that makes sense, though, because, it, you know, like people generalize drop height and they're like, yeah, it's a 10 mil drop. And then, but if you think about, you know, someone with a size 13 shoe compared to myself with a size six shoe, that's mm. that would be ridiculous mm. if, I, if that was the same. Like that mm. just doesn't make any sense. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, it just, it just got, it got to be such a crazy discussion. It was so polarized and, you know, and so much, so much opinion on, on what was going on and people just got completely blinded to, to what it was actually all about. And that actually wasn't a very important discussion at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, we're very conscious of time. So we'll finish with these, these two questions um, just here. And I know, Kelly, I think you should ask the question about true sustainability because oh, you yeah. brought that up and I think that's a topic that you're really passionate about. 
Yeah, I'm always looking at, you know, how things can be working towards um, a more sustainable environment. Um, and I don't know, I know that I've heard you talk about this on on um, Brad Beer's podcast before about um, shoe sustainability. But do you, is it is it possible to to like well, what what's what's in the works at the moment on that front? That's pretty a bit of a general. Yeah. Point, so I mean, it, it is probably for me it is the most important issue for me personally when I'm involved in innovation and design. Um, so if 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 I can possibly make a difference to that, then I will. So. You know, right now we are we are looking at at um, football product, for example, that doesn't use synthetic leathers, it doesn't use um, animal made leathers, it uses leathers made out of cactuses grown in the in the <laughs> desert in Mexico. Yeah. And the quality the quality of the leather made out of cactus is higher than kangaroo leather, which is considered to be the absolute best leather. That's so cool. So, yeah, so you have you have this potential um, to do this, and you know we. One of the one of the issues I have is that we talk so much about recycling, but recycling doesn't make the problem go away. You're just recycling it. Mm. So what we have to move, what we have to move towards is biodegradability. We have to figure out a way that you can build a shoe that you can bury and will grow a new plant from that. So we're looking at things like potato starches and corn starches and um and materials that will encourage um, bacteria to break down, in particular the midsole. I mean, the midsole of a running shoe lasts for two thousand years. Mm. It, it ain't going away. <laughs> yeah, that's that's so cool. And I I often think that like, gosh, I, we go through so many shoes, and we're because we we run a you know a fair bit, not as much as some, but I, <laughs> like at the moment, I'm running six plus kilometers a week and that like you wear through shoes you know reasonably quickly yeah at that and, rate, Blake, so. and Blake's obviously a massive polluter because he's got a huge collection of shoes but, <laughs> but it, it is the single it's the single biggest responsibility for the industry um mm. and now most of the most of the bigger companies have got entire departments um, just working on sustainability there's a really interesting company in the UK called Hilo I don't know whether you know of them or not but they are probably the the first company that has a shoe that is somewhere between 70 and 80% biodegradable. Oh, so so nearly all of the components of the shoes um, will, will biodegrade within two years. So that's a really big step forward. Um, and I think it's, yeah, I mean, it scares the hell out of me. You know, I've talked about this before, you know, even the carbon footprint of manufacturing um, is, is so gigantic. I mean, Nike's carbon footprint will power New York City for for a year oh, it's, wow. it's beyond imagination um yeah. so it, it is it is something that has to be it has to be taken seriously and it has to be addressed properly how far away are we do you think from from that sort of i guess bleeding into our world i i think we're getting very close and this will be a little bit like the the four percent that once we've got companies that really crack it mm. um everybody else will i think pretty quickly fall into line and not commit uh, commit the money required. Uh, you know, and I also think that, the, I mean, I don't know whether you guys have ever been on a factory production line for, for footwear, but what surprises most people is that that even today, uh, most of the product is literally handmade. Like you've literally got a conveyor belt with somebody putting the glue on the shoe, somebody else yeah. slapping the outsole on the shoe. That's the way it gets put together. So still very hands-on. Mm. Um, and that's why the carbon footprints are so big. But now we're looking at things like we we have um, we have much better techniques to minimise the use of glues, which are highly toxic. Um, you know, we've got these terrifying evidence that when you go into any waterway, you'll find you'll find um, evidence of some of the toxic elements that are made that are used in in shoemaking in in animals in the in the water streams all over the world, Australia included. So you know, I think we need to be looking more at techniques like use like robotics. Um, and those sorts of things that are far more energy efficient turnaround is much better. Um, we now have much better foams that don't use blowing agents that are highly toxic. So we can use these sorts of foams that are that are much more environmentally friendly. So it's not just a matter of recycling materials or biodegrading materials. It's about what else is involved. What what else is involved in the process that you can affect yeah. that will help us all. You know that's that's really where we have to be with our minds. Sit with all this. 
Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah, it's pretty close. It's pretty close. I think. I I, I think that uh, a couple of companies have, are already doing pretty pretty good stuff. Salomon being one of them, actually. Yeah. Um, so I think that um, uh, it is it is a real priority for most of the, of the big companies. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Nice yeah. Now I'll leave you with this very last question, and you can answer it as short or as long as you like. Can we predict running injuries from someone's biomechanics in the asymptomatic population? No pain involved. No, I don't think you can. Um, but I think you can predict load transfer. Mm. And so you have to... So it's a dotted line rather than a straight line, I think is the answer. So there, there are many moving parts to that question. Um, and I think to be able to say... Uh, you've got genuine valve, and therefore you will get medial compartment knee OA. I don't, I don't think the, the evidence supports that at all. There are too many other factors that may be involved. Uh, if you have genuine valve and you've got gingival disease, will you get knee OA? You probably will because mm. you've got gum disease. Okay, so <laughs> so this. It's a very, very big question you just asked. And um, <laughs> and that, as I said, there are many moving parts to that. But I think you can definitely look at, at load, but it doesn't mm. necessarily mean that you're going to get an injury as a result of that load. Mm. Yeah, good. Good, good. Yeah, good answer. That's something that we often probably say as well, I would, I reckon. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's why it's why when you get somebody who comes in with genuine valgum, you should be saying, let's have a look at your gums. <laughs> which is going to be a very weird question for a podiatrist. <laughs> <laughs> I might get into the half report if I have to do that. We'll see. Nah, very good. Simon, thank you so much for coming on. This has been undoubtedly my favourite podcast that we've done so far. So I thank you very much for that. Um, and I'm sure Kelly feels the same. But Kelly, any parting words before we, before we say sayonara? No, that was that was awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and um, um, sharing some time as well with us. That was that was great, and I'm sure the listeners are going to love that. Well, thank you very much for asking me to be a part of it. I'm really pleased to talk to you guys and um, get those surfboards out. You've got no excuse. <laughs> apart from the sharks. What's that? Yeah. from the sharks. The men in grey suits. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Maybe. See you later, we'll darling. see. Okay, guys. Take <laughs> thank care. you. See you later. Bye.